0: Christians have deep differences about ideas and people. No, really. For nearly 2,000 years of church history, we have argued about salvation, end times, baptism, and beyond, including the place of fantastical stories in our lives as Christians. If we didn't argue about stuff, you wouldn't be listening now. But now that we have social media, it does feel like Christians are battling even more fiercely about politics, Christian leaders, church failings, abuse, how we engage with good and bad ideas in our culture. On this podcast, we have touched on these issues ourselves, but in this episode, let's explore how great stories might help us best discern these debates and even fight for peace among God's people. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com, and I also co-authored a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parents. And
1: I'm Zachary Russell, and I'm trying my best right now to not become an orthodox partisan, and I'll explain that label a little bit later. And this is episode 103,
0: When Christians Clash in
1: Public, Can Great Stories Help Us Fight for Peace?
0: Even after we started outlining the episode, I can count maybe half a dozen bad Christian conflicts that have wandered across my internets. There's a thing with that one church over there. There's that one leader who said something carelessly. (laughs) And then there's all those deconstructionists running around trying to deconstruct everything except deconstruction itself or the Christian ideas that they still feel good about. I am at war with myself going into this episode, Zach and Gentle Listeners, because on the one hand... I like stories with conflict in them. I live in a world that God has allowed conflict to infest. I understand that. I want to be realistic about it. I understand that Satan is a defeated foe, that Jesus has won, and we're just playing out the results of that already secured victory. But the war still goes on, and I want to admit that, but I also want to fight for peace. I don't want to fight in these ideological or personal battles for the thrill of the fight itself. I don't want to be some kind of ideological mercenary. I don't want to live as if we're always going to be fighting. I want to live for the kingdom of peace that is coming in our real life future in the new heavens and new earth. But we're not there yet. We've got to fight sometimes. And so, on the one hand, I love peace. On the other hand, maybe I say, let them fight.
1: <laughs> well, I, I very much grew up in a hippie culture in the city that I, I grew up in, the high school I went to, just kind of the people I hung out with. So, I'm, I'm very much, you know, a, a hippie at heart i guess you could say but yes i do like me some squabbles i also grew up watching wwf and you know loving all the uh oh, <laughs> silly fights between hulk hogan and the undertaker oh yeah i went to see them in person uh man i was older than i'll care to admit before i learned out it was all fake <laughs> but you know and that is also kind of an analogy sometimes of some of these social media and political battles that is that really a battle or is it all just for clicks and uh clout and you know how much of this is actual fight but then you know when you start seeing it getting dirty and and getting personal and bloody then you're like okay this has gone a little bit too far and like you said it's it's not just a clean fight anymore it's it's something else it's uh it's a total warfare kind of situation and yeah and i think it's that moment that we find ourselves in all too often where it is this totalitarian impulse that we sometimes see behind these fights that uh, it's a zero sum game. And the only way to win is to completely destroy your enemy. Whereas I grew up with the motto of war games, that the only way to win is not to play. (laughs) And that is, again, that's kind of where I am at heart. A lot of times
0: at the same time, Zach, I think you just picked a fight with the professional wrestling fandom by saying, quote, it's all (laughs) fake. End quote. I'm sure they have an answer to that. I'm not as familiar with that fandom, so I can't say one way or another. (laughs) Yeah, I I grew up uh, enjoying Westerns, uh, fantasy tales in which there were very real battles between good and evil. But as I get older, I, I still enjoy those stories, but I do enjoy stories that show the nuances of this conflict. There are roles in between absolute heroes and absolute villains and the best stories i think show the heroes struggling with their own flaws uh the villains struggling with the light side of the force Uh, star wars may come up a few times in this discussion uh, and yet they don't make everything into a gray area there may be some characters with mixed motives and anti-heroes and such like uh, but for biblical worldview as well as just to make a good story you need to end the story with some kind of conclusion no the hero is going to stay the good guy and the villain is going to stay the bad guy who should be defeated or maybe spoiler alert like at the end of uh the final star wars movie star wars episode six the final movie right that's right uh return of the jedi you get kind of a kind of a redemption uh for darth vader uh even though he did some terrible things uh we'll bring that up a little bit later in the discussion by the way, uh, we're probably going to just snack on some concessions throughout this episode rather than load them all up front. Uh, this is a tricky topic. Uh, listeners, uh, we would like you to pray for us right now, even as you're listening. We've dealt with some tricky topics before, including uh, sensual scenes and all kinds of things. Uh, but this one, we were kind of looking at the nature of Christians fighting. Uh, we dare coming across as if we're all above that sort of thing. Like, well, that's not true. Uh, but we also dare coming across as if we love this sort of thing for its own sake that is also not true so even as you listen please pray that we get this one as right as we possibly can and even though we've already recorded and released the episode while you're praying uh, i think god will hopefully send that good result of your prayer back in time Uh, and then you'll have a great testimony to share about answered prayer and which leads me to our first sponsor for this episode testimonies that we share with one another the stories of how god has redeemed us from our conflict with him are one way that we can fight for peace as christians and our first sponsor is andrew chamberlain's testimony podcast here's the description that this sponsor has sent us the testimony podcast features people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives these are testimonies of god's grace in times of great blessing as well as moments of hardship and difficulty Each episode features a conversation between host Andrew Chamberlain and a guest who reflects on the times in their lives when they have felt Jesus as their close companion. These can be hard conversations, but they tell of the mercy and grace of God. You'll hear from men and women from a wide range of backgrounds, leaders in the church, artists, musicians, writers, and entrepreneurs, sharing their testimony of how Jesus has journeyed with them in their lives. You can listen and subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on. Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and wherever you source your podcasts. Zach, I love it when a sponsor just drops neatly into a segue to our first chapter for the discussion. And our chapter one for this discussion is more positive and yet also recognition of the flaws uh, that we have as Christ's heroes on earth. I've titled chapter one, The Church is Christ's Bride, Yet They Have Always Argued About Ideas. I think this is just essential to get right is understanding that if we're going to talk about how the church gets into fights uh, and still maintains faith in Jesus Christ, then we need to understand the purpose of the church. And I'm not going to toss the church under the bus because, oh, no, we're always fighting and we have too many denominations. What does the world think about all of our fights? What about our public witness? Like, well. On the one hand I say yeah, if you think it's bad in the church fights, you should see how the sausage is made inside the secular boardrooms and houses of power. Like it can get pretty bad cuz humans are going to human, and to be human in this fallen age, you got to do some fighting. I'm not saying you should, it's just reality. Just trying to recognize reality there. But that is not the ultimate purpose of the church. Christ has founded the church on the foundation of his gospel and the church, capital C, all true believers throughout local churches and denominations and Christian groups across all of history. As Screwtape said, the church terrible as an army with banners. This church is amazing. It strikes fear in the corrupted hearts of demons. And regardless of our fights is a light for the gospel. Ultimately, I think uh, that the church's role in Christ's gospel will be vindicated by the end. Uh, All of the sins and bad battles that we get into on the way, uh, we'll be forgiven if we are repentant. But for now, people are always fighting inside the church. And I say this because I, I think some people, particularly young Christians, Zach, I'm curious if you also went through this stage. Like I think every Christian, a new Christian or young Christian needs to go through this stage of development. I think people assume that, oh, no, the church is different now from how it originally was. Was back in the book of Acts when all the believers were together, they shared their possessions, they gave to the needy, they were preaching in the synagogue, and nobody ever persecuted them. And they never fought with each other over, you know, meat sacrificed to idols or whether or not the elders should wait on tables or whether or not the Apostle Paul had truly converted. Or, for example, you know, the Apostle Paul, newly renamed uh, from Saul, he never fought with Barnabas over personnel issues so with a guy named John Mark, for example. Uh, There weren't any fights going on in the Galatian church with their legalistic leaders. Uh, They didn't have any issues in the Corinthian church about super apostles. (laughs) No, it was all perfectly in harmony. They didn't have any denominations or anything. It was all the same church. And the only issue they had was a Caesar getting out of control and throwing people to the lions. Well, of course, I'm being a little sarcastic here because even without persecution from outside by the Caesars and the Ephesian leaders and the mobs and whatnot, Christians, even back in the book of Acts, were at conflict. And I love how Luke, the historian who wrote Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just describes that on the way. He just mentions that in passing. There are issues with the meat sacrifice to idols issues. Uh, There are issues with the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers who thought that the Gentile believers should be still keeping Jewish law. There were issues with whether or not you should get circumcised. There were issues with these uh, highfalutin, Uh, rhetorical flourishing super apostles running around, uh, making people feel very worldly wise. Uh, And then the apostle Paul comes along and says, no, actually it's about the simple gospel and you need to put away that highfalutin rhetoric. There were issues with the church back then as now. And I think it helps to see that perspective. I, for one, I would dare to call myself ecumenical, uh, but I think I'd add a modifier to that. Come to think of it. I'm eternally ecumenical. Christ is going to draw all true believers across his Capital C church together. By the end, he's going to sort the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares and you know some of the some of the wheat that was acting like tares, like he's going to fix that eventually. All real Christians are real anywhere. Christ will save them. He'll be faithful to complete their salvation and purge out their flaws and incorruptions. But for now, I do live in God's real world. Christians fight in the real world. I want us to fight about ideas and not attack people. That's just inevitable, though, that we are going to attack each other as well as debate the ideas in a more friendly manner. Um, That's why, by the way, I I guess this is a concession. Like, I'm not opposed to denominations or debates about issues or even occasional debates about personalities and motives. We need to do that sometimes. I'm not a peacenik. Uh, I believe that Jesus will bring peace. It's not my job to bring peace. And this whole episode is not an effort to say, why are you all just fighting all the time? Like just sit around and read books and poetry and think about peaceful things. Like, That's not the point of this show.
1: So it seems like you're saying we should reject the nostalgia of the church was better back then, or we need to make the church great again because the new Testament church was perfect in that, you know, we need to go back to that style of church. And it's like, yeah, there were plenty of problems back then. Yeah. And I think it, that's just inevitable for the process of sanctification, you know, Hebrews 10, 14 says by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. And I think sometimes we can get too caught up in the first half of that verse that we're perfect forever because of one sacrifice. Well, that's true. Like we're legally perfect in God's eyes, but we are being made perfect. We are being made holy and it's a process. Um, And I think C.S. Lewis is the one that said that the church is more like a hospital and less like a museum. And ever since I've read that, I think that's given me a good filter to kind of apply to a lot of the things that, that come up in, uh, inner church or, you know, church to church debates, or I should say intra and inter church debates. When you forget that it's what gives rise to the sort of quest for a non-denominational church. Like that was a big thing I really fell into in college. Like, well, I don't belong to a denomination. I'm non-denominational and I don't really think that exists. And, you know, I'm a part of a ministry now, Stephen, that uh, says we're an interdenominational ministry. And I I really like the honesty of that. Yeah. Yes. Because it's not denominations that are the problem. It's when secondary or tertiary issues are put in place of primary issues. Or The way that we break it down is saying there are convictions, there are persuasions, and then there's opinions. So it's kind of first, second, and third order things. A friend of mine put this in a really good math equation recently, he says it's Let me see if I get this right. It's three X plus two Y plus Z. So no matter what the value of Y or Z is, X is going to be a much stronger value because it's got a higher multiplier next to it. So, you know, there are issues that are just by their nature, a lot more important than other issues. Um, So those would be, you know, the virgin birth of Christ, his sinless life, his death on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, his bodily resurrection salvation by grace alone. We believe in a a triune God who is three persons in one God. And so those are the conviction level issues. Now, denominational issues are on the lower tier, the persuasions, and then there's the opinions about kind of everyday matters. So debates about those are fine. The problem is when those get out of order. And that's where I've seen a lot of things really go off the rails. That's where I see all the Like you said, when it gets personal, when there's a lot of name calling, when the, when the attacks are on the, you know, the character of someone rather than the ideas they're espousing, um, that that's where I think it goes wrong. I've always loved debates. I mean, again, yes, I am a peacenik at heart, I guess, but I've all like for most of my Christian life, I've always been intrigued by debates about these ideas, whatever level they're on. I think you just got to know how to play the game on that level.
0: I agree. I would, uh, denounce the idea of pacifism like personally although i think like i I try to follow the example of wise christians who say that you know i really like the idea of pacifism you know just peaceful non-resistance uh you know just assuming that someone else out there is going to lay down the law so that you have the luxury of a pacifist approach like I, i don't agree with that uh and i and yet i think that is something that christians can peaceably disagree about I would almost bring that debate onto the field of story again and say, no, wait a minute. You know, if you look at either real life history or even this fictional example, pacifism does not work. The only time that it does work is if someone else is not being a pacifist. Someone else out there uh, needs to have a big enough gun uh, to ward off the attack uh, so that you get to stay in your house and practice peaceful non-resistance. Like I don't agree that that approach is biblical and you can talk about how, you know, Jesus uh, kind of, uh, subtly affirmed the role of soldiers, and of course, Romans 13 talks about the fact that in some way, even civil government uh, bearing the sword uh, is an instrument of God's justice. So God does allow conflicts to happen uh, both at the physical level, especially if it's a legitimate government authority administering a civil justice, uh, and at the personal level. And I agree with you, Zach, that uh, the, the trick there is to make sure that when Christians are debating about these things, we are debating about ideas and not personalities. And we'll, we'll get to the personalities issue uh, in, the, uh, in the next chapter here. I love the idea of the interdenominational group that you mentioned. Like, I mean, technically, I guess Lorehaven would be interdenominational. We do not have denominational mm-hmm. fidelity. Like I, I've caught wind here and there about the types of churches that our writers and creators go to. Uh, but so far, it's just, it's not been an issue for us. You know, everybody uh, at least agrees with the uh, Sacred Scrolls faith statement that we re uh refreshed at the start of this year 2022 and so far it's all been good and uh lord willing that will continue to be so i think an interdenominational approach recognizes the real and appropriate differences that christians have over the secondary and tertiary issues and opinions uh, but they can then uh, focus on the biblical truth that we all share in common and it also, I think, helps us to be honest about our differences. Like some of my favorite Christian groups, like uh, Together for the Gospel, uh, they're having their very last conference uh, scheduled uh, later uh, this year, well, actually just next month in, as we record this, April 2022, they're holding their last conference. Together for the Gospel, like the whole idea of that is that there are leaders from different denominations getting together, uh, sometimes I think maybe minimizing the areas where they disagree uh, and focusing on the areas where they agree. Uh, and yet there has been lots of controversy over that organization because, well, like this one guy started out with them and and now he's backed off because, you know, the other guys are too soft on this issue, or they're, you know, partnering with this other guy or this other group over here. And it it gets complicated. And I'm not throwing up my hands and, you know, complaining because it's complicated. Like I'm just saying, well, that's how it is. And on the one hand, I just want to be very practical. You know, Christians are going to part from each other like Paul and Barnabas did over issues that are not of primary importance. And yet when Luke records that separation that they have, a sharp disagreement arose between them, he says, Luke just states it as fact. He doesn't blame Paul. He (laughs) doesn't blame Barnabas. They were together for the gospel and now they're not. You know, Barnabas wanted to do one thing and the apostle Paul wanted to do another and at the heart of their disagreement was an individual and uh, Luke doesn't go into the details. Uh, I like to think that Luke put that in there because acts uh, seems to have been a record of the early church, not only for the early church, but maybe as testimony to serve in the apostle Paul's defense in Rome. I don't know. I think some people have theorized about that, but it helps to know, you know, if somebody can come forward and say, Hey, well, the apostle Paul did this. Like, yes, the apostle Paul has had disagreements with people. It doesn't necessarily reflect poorly on Paul or Barnabas or even John Mark for that matter. I think if I remember right, later on, uh, Paul actually compliments Barnabas and or John Mark at the end of one of his uh, epistles. And that is an encouragement.
1: Yeah, He says he's useful to me in ministry. He's useful.
0: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, perhaps John Mark, you know, an untrained uh, recruit. Uh, wasn't so useful then, or was that Onesimus that is uh, useful, the, the, the slave? I, I forget which one that was. We'll We'll have to clarify that later. But the point is that the Apostle Paul may not have had use for this particular recruit at the time, but Barnabas did. They have differences in gifts, differences in approach. It's like a microcosm hmm. of denomination right there. I think it's fine for Christians to divide on those issues.
1: You know, and the issue with John Mark seems to be one of teachability. So, yes, he he seemed to have had some court, some sort of falling out with Paul. He he disappointed, let down Paul. Now, it wasn't in the same level as uh I believe it was Demas who Paul says has left us because he loved the world, but it was some other kind of human failing that John Mark had. And, you know, the the way I understand it is Barnabas was like had a little bit of a softer heart towards John Mark, just like, you know, this guy, he's he's rough around the edges, God bless him, bless his heart. Uh, he just, he needs a little time. To, uh, he needs a little maturity and, you know, I'll take him on and notice there that Barnabas was not being a pacifist either. He was fighting for John Mark, whereas Paul was fighting for what whatever his approach or uh, to two missions was. And I don't think either one of them was necessarily wrong, but they realized that they each had different priorities. We've talked about pacifism and something I I keep seeing coming up today in social media and in Christian debates is this phrase, is this really the hill you want to die on? And that seems like such a phony kind of solution to a lot of these battles. Because first of all, what does that even say? Is this the hill you want to die on? Is that saying that we can't have a good natured debate about something? Or is that saying, look, this is enemy territory. Just give up. Just let the enemy have this hill. You don't need to die there. We can we can die on other hills. It's like, well, pretty soon there's going to be no hills left. But I don't even think that's an honest rebuttal to some of these fights because it, it's sort of suppressing debate or it's sort of just defeatism or something. But I do think that there is wisdom necessary for how how hard I fight and the way that I fight. Sure, that's very much a place for wisdom. But I just, I don't think that there's anything outside the scope of Christ's authority. Now, some things are going to <laughs> come very violently under Christ's authority in the, you know, in the end times. Okay. So there's a lot of things now that, that the church does not have, oh, I hate to use this word, but there's a lot of things the church does not have dominion over right now. And, and that's just how it is. We don't control all the governments in the world or whatever and that's okay because Jesus ultimately has authority and we can trust that he's going to bring about things in his own time and it's yes it's him that's going to rule things with an iron scepter when he comes back so yeah i mean Jesus is going to have complete dominion there's that word again but i think it's okay that we don't at the same time i think it's okay that we speak the truth to every issue now again how how far we want to take things that's That's where we need wisdom. Amen.
0: And we need wisdom to understand what time it is, where we're located, what our primary callings are to our family, to our jobs, you know, making sure that we're well fed and taking care of the people around us. If those issues out there that we want to fight about are distracting us from those callings, then that would be wrong Uh, about the is this the hill you want to die on question? Like, I think one thing that may be wrong with that approach is first, it sounds patronizing. Second, it assumes that I'm some kind of kamikaze fighter who's going to give my life for this cause (laughs) metaphorically or otherwise. Uh, my answer to that would be, no, I want to live on this hill. I want my neighbors to live on this hill. Uh, this apparently is the hill that the bad guys want to die on. I don't want them to die either, but if they're going to destroy themselves, I want to minimize the casualties (laughs) right now. For example, to just appropriate that metaphor, the hill that I will die on is not only those primary issues, but on those secondary issues that are quickly becoming primary because they are the very grounds of assault in our generation, in our culture, speaking in 21st century United States. Uh, The hill I want to die on is defending marriage and family from redefinition by the religion of sexualism. And I I keep mentioning this a few times because I think that's how I want to define this as a religious battleground. This is not neutrality versus Christianity. This is not about Christians trying to hold on to their power or defend the patriarchy or any of that sort of thing, as has been wrongly accused of some. Uh, in, at our best, this is about Christians trying to preserve families and keep them secure from these assaults on the very image of God in children. The sexualism religion is now, as I've said, uh, my single issue on which I vote, as like within the, the parameters of scripture and the realism of our society, what can I do to halt this assault on people? Which will, of course, lead to the crimes of attacks on religious liberty and free speech, as well as abortion, as well as literally the propagandization and mutilation of children. Like, I will die on that hill, but I I don't want to die, actually. I want to live. I want people to live. I want them to find happiness. And that's the story that defines, I think the wise Christian who's engaging with these discussions or debates over ideas. That's the story in which we find ourselves. This story is not about us. We are not the heroes fighting on the hill. Christ owns the hill. He took it back from the world, the flesh and the devil 2000 years ago, the culmination of the gospel narrative. That's the narrative. That's shaping us. That's the script for the battle. And I think a lot of people are following the wrong script and the script stars and directs and is directed by and is written by themselves. And if we're not careful, we can start appropriating that narrative from the ultimate capital A author. And I think that leads us to chapter two, the fact that many of these Christian debates that we see on social media and in real life, and often overlapping, of course, because real life does shape social media and vice versa. A lot of these struggles, I think, are not about the ideas, but are about personal conflicts. They're about people. And in order to illustrate what I mean, I, I think I need to get a little bit more specific here. Um, quick grab from the concession stand, a very tasty candy inside this wrapper. I'm going to try to avoid mentioning specific examples, but I might need to. At least the ones that uh, we can mostly agree are uh, you know, examples about bad guys that most people, at least among our listeners, would agree on. I think I may mention a few of those. Uh, but I want this to be as evergreen as possible. You know, I want this podcast to age well you know, five years later and when all of the old debates have been cleared out and instead we got a whole set of new ones. Uh, Zach, uh, you know that uh, we keep up with the, some of the conversation about deconstruction. You know, That's the new term for uh, doubting your faith so much that uh, you're willing to break down the Bible, break down what you call evangelicalism, and maybe not tell the difference between uh, the stuff that we've built on top of the foundation of the gospel and the foundation itself. You know, everything's got to go if it hurts somebody or if it hurt me or if it hurt my friends or if it hurt the people that I see in the news who say that they're hurt and whom I want to reach for Christ. Like, everything must go. Everything must be deconstructed. Uh, so goes the term now. But before this was a jargon, um, I actually, and it's taken me a while to figure this out. I actually feel like I have deconstructed in the best possible way because there was a time, I think, starting in the mid 2000s when I got a hold of some articles on the internet and books and such about abuse and false teaching going on uh, in churches and in evangelical groups and interdenominational groups. We'll name a couple of names here because it's two fellows who have been pretty much totally discredited and may even be strange names to some of our listeners. Uh, Some years ago, I started following uh, the scandals and the criticisms of two, I would call them false teachers. Uh, Maybe they believed in Jesus. I don't know, but they were still false teachers. Their names were Bill Gothard and Doug Phillips. And I think a lot of people feel like they've benefited from these guys, particularly in the homeschool movement, because Bill Gothard was all about character, 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 and character development and basic life principles and all the rest of it. Uh, Doug Phillips was literally a patriarchalist. That's not a slander by some feminist or something like, no, he was all about the patriarchy by name. Uh, They had false teachings about how like women, like even moms, wives could not speak in church. And like, there was all kinds of weird stuff there. Oddly enough, both of those chaps ended up falling into pretty hideous sexual abuse uh, allegations as well. I bring that up not to uh, boast of an old war, but to say that those scenarios, reading about them, seeing the testimonies of victims uh, made me sympathetic to people who have legitimately horrid church trauma backstories. Church trauma is real. Abuse is real, as well as just a lot of... uh, unending spiritual discouragement uh, from a church or church leadership or even family leadership that either didn't know what they were doing or had bought into some kind of false teaching like that can poison a person. I think that can lead to some kind of stress at the same time. I think people who have not dealt with that trauma, who've not taken it to Christ and gotten help from wise counselors in order to help heal from that trauma, People can evade that trauma. They can suppress it. And I'm talking about real issues here that people have with the church back home. And I'll define what I mean by that in just a moment. But I think instead of seeking healing from that trauma and putting their imaginations about that trauma in perspective, I think people can weaponize that. My trauma is my own. Like, I don't know what to do with it. I've got this burden. (laughs) I've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress lately. So I'm thinking about the example of the burden on your back. You know, In Pilgrim's Progress, it's all the weight of sin But there's also adjoining burdens, which is the weight of trauma, You know, just the weight of living in a groaning world and how people have sinned against you. People will turn that into a weapon instead. And they will use that weapon to go on vengeance quests against the people who hurt them or the people who remind them who look like whom they associate with the people who hurt them. And that's what I mean when I've described what I've labeled the church back home syndrome. Uh, Oddly enough, a lot of people have kind of resonated with that phrase, so I try to define it carefully. I'm not talking about legitimate grievances with the church back home uh, that involves uh, either needing to leave that church, uh, shake the dust off your sandals, uh, realize that you have to leave their sin to God, the God who will avenge any unrepented sin. I'm not talking about that real tragic backstory. I'm talking about this weaponization, talking about people who take that trauma and say, well, everything now is about the church back home. The bad guys, the disagreeable people I meet on the internet or in real life who have ideas different from mine, uh, the people who believe the Bible in inerrancy or in male headship in the church or something like that's all about my villains. This story is about me. I'm the hero and these people are my villains. And after a while, people are letting their imaginations get out of control and they think they're talking about ideas or history or politics. But what they're really talking about is their own story. I think that this happens way too often in some of these Christian debates with each other. For example, uh, take the, uh, the probably the biggest news story right now that's current at the time of we're recording this, uh, the war uh, that Russia launched on Ukraine. I see a lot of people thinking that they're talking about that war, when in fact what they're actually doing is they're projecting their imaginations onto it humans live by stories. We live by uh, those, uh, those tales of heroes and villains. And sometimes we don't want the complicated bits. I mean, Putin, for example, in this case is basically a villain. Like uh, he, he's, he's a super villain here. Absolutely. Uh, but you see some war propaganda, you know, from the good guys and the bad guys alike, you know, good guys in war do bad things. That's just a fact. I don't think that means we all ought to become pacifists because all of our hands are covered in blood. Like, no, some of us are covered in blood for self-defensive reasons, and then others launch the assault. You know, we can get into Christian just war theory another time. Main issue being that we ought not project our battles onto these other people's battles. That is letting our imaginations run away with us. My other go-to example is, I will dare to mention the dispute in the United States over the southern border. I started to notice a few years ago, uh, particularly among Christians, that people would debate well, what should the United States government or the state of Texas or whomever uh, do with the immigrants coming over the southern border, many of them uh, contrary to the laws of the United States? People started talking about the wall, the wall, build the wall, don't build the wall, build some wall, don't build any wall ever. And I realized that I thought, I think the wall was not literal for a lot of people. It was a metaphor. It was people misusing their imaginations, projecting them onto this idea dispute. And instead, they were imagining where they were in the story. If someone built the wall, would I be outside the wall or inside the wall? Like If I'm inside the wall, then I'm afraid of those people coming from outside the wall. But if I'm outside the wall, then I'm angry at the people keeping me out. And I think a lot of people are projecting their own stories about feeling outside the group or inside the group onto this issue. In either case, whether it's wars or borders, I think for many people, it's not really about the ideas, but about the people and about our own stories that we just can't help projecting into these battles. And I think it feels intellectually dishonest or unnecessary uh, to deny that this is happening. I think we need to admit that we are creatures of imagination. We're not just brains in a tank. We're not Vulcan logicians. God gave us emotions, God has allowed these traumas in our past, and we need to find more biblical solutions for dealing with them, rather than weaponizing them in order to pretend that we're fighting for ideas when we're actually still fighting our own unresolved battles from our past.
1: Even with that last issue you brought up about the border wall, you know, there's a whole other subset of people that have said, hey, I've had my uh, home invaded by criminals. Yes. And, or I've been robbed in public and, you know, they, they got away or, or whatever. And and I personally know someone who has a ranch down in South Texas and there have been literal drug smuggling planes (laughs) flying over and landing on his property and like cartel activity, like literal cartel stuff. And he feels extremely vulnerable. Another friend I have, they, uh, they have a ranch down there and they just leave their house unlocked when they're gone uh because they're like hey you know people are going to come through here cuz the uh there's some kind of pipeline that goes through their area so they it gets followed and then you know they're like if we don't leave our house unlocked they'll just break the windows and and go in and so they they've sort of resigned themselves to it and uh this other guy I know that with the cartels he's armed all the time cuz he's like i don't know what's going to happen people imagine themselves in different sides of this or in different scenarios related to the issue there was a thing I saw yesterday, Stephen, where, um, I'm, I'm just trying to keep this general, but a friend of mine wrote an article and then someone replied to it and said, I literally can't imagine someone who looks at world events and thinks the worst thing is this book that needs to be reviewed.
0: Well, there's your problem. You can't imagine that's a failure exactly. of imagination. They've that's just said the exactly quiet part the out, out loud. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Well, then you need to try harder or else step back
1: yeah. until you can. Right. Right. You know, for all the talk about empathy. And in recent years, th- there is a total failure of empathy sometimes by people who scream that word the loudest. And, you know, I don't want to get into that whole thing because there are some other perspectives on empathy I'm I'm trying to understand right now, but at least that sense of, I can't imagine someone who thinks this, you, you should stop right there when you hear yourself saying that. Like, I can't imagine why someone thinks this is a problem. I can't imagine why someone wants to focus on this. Well, you could, you could stop and you could imagine, and maybe you have lost that ability. If you find yourself saying that, and you need to recover that ability to imagine, to put yourself in their shoes. And yes, that is where stories can help us because we can see people in different sides of a conflict and we can see how conflicts and and hot button issues affect lots of people. But, you know, going back to what you said a minute ago about these, um, these leaders who are like literally in, in, Proudly patriarchal, I think there's another process that is going on, Stephen, where someone says, okay, that church leader was bad, therefore, patriarchy is bad, therefore, complementarianism is bad, therefore, evangelicalism is bad. And, you know, there's this process of yes, deconstruction that is going on, and there's no end to it. Like there's no end to what you could deconstruct if that is your approach. If you start with this thing of that guy is bad therefore everything about him is going to be bad everything connected to him and everyone connected to him is bad you know that is not a healthy approach it's a satisfying approach it it's very satisfying to analyze uh belief systems in light of well they're just doing that because they're a bad person who's just abusing their power that just wants more power and wants to hurt people and you know is a mustache twirling villain but it's much harder <laughs> to look at someone as maybe they're misguided. Maybe they actually had some right beliefs but wrong practices. Maybe it wasn't their belief that was bad. Maybe they didn't actually believe it. Maybe they said they believed, you know, whatever, complementarianism, but they didn't actually understand what it was they thought they believed. And I think there is, there's definitely a place to debate a lot of those issues, and, and we can kind of work out what that looks like in our local context when people take the deconstruction approach and look, I don't entirely understand a lot of the philosophy behind this. So don't come at me with quotes from Foucault or Derrida or whatever, but I'm trying to understand this. There's a real danger where it can become this solvent that like tries to dissolve everything that it attacks. And there's, there's no end to that. Uh, Steven, that's what is has me on alert is I see a lot of my friends embracing some of these methods. And I really worry where that's going to end for people like, my heart in this is I'm very concerned for people getting swept away. Like if this is a, you know, like a category five hurricane and we're all living on the beach, some of us are in a house where we're like, where's all this water coming from? <laughs> and other people are like, oh my goodness, my house is flooding and the floor is dropping out. And other people are getting pulled away by the riptide and other people are way out to sea. that we're all in different phases of this. But I I really worry that this tide that's coming in is, is going to sweep people away without realizing it. And that's, that's what I really have a heart for is to see, Hey, look, it's fine to analyze these things, but when you analyze them with certain assumptions, things can go very wrong.
0: Well, some of the assumptions that people are making are, I'm just doing philosophy or I'm just approaching this logically, or I'm just doing history. I'm not, this is not about theology. It's just about history. Well, what some people who are saying that are doing is they are assuming a meta narrative, uh, which is the field of imagination here, and the meta narrative is written by, directed by, and starring myself. This is this is my story <laughs> here. You know, I'm I'm the hero, and, and someone may not admit that, and they may even pass a polygraph exam. So that is why I often. Uh, am interested by the folks who will quote the deconstruction philosophers and talk about history and logic and apologetics and all of that like i i understand that that needs to happen but more often uh, especially because i'm trying to emphasize the role of the imagination here i'm interested in uh, actually those two imagination problems that you mentioned zach i think there's two different problems that you mentioned the first one is given away by the phrase i can't imagine Well, there you go that's your problem right there you know open the hood and figure out what's going wrong a failure to imagine but the other problem is undisciplined imagination Uh, the person starts saying well the only reason you're doing that is because you want power or because you're a villain like the ones that i know Uh, that's both a limited imagination like you only know one type of villain and it's also an overindulgent imagination your only motives are villainous you just want power uh, you want influence. Uh, you want to get the upper hand over victims. And that there is what C.S. Lewis called bulverism. So, of course, it's a day ending in Y and a Fantastical Truth episode. So we've got to get at least one Lewis quote <laughs> in here. Uh, there's a lengthy quote from God in the Dock uh, when Lewis explains what what he means by bulverism. He said it's an invented name. Uh, he actually has a little story he made up uh, about a person named Bulver. Uh, who was age five and he heard his mother say to his father, Oh, you say that because you are a man. And uh, this imaginary character, Bulver, uh, determines that, oh, like this is a great way to win an argument. You don't have to show how or why the other person is wrong. You just have to challenge their motives. You have to make it about identity. This person is just trying right. to get power. Uh, this person is just, yeah, exactly. Identity this warfare. person is just the wrong kind of person. Well, there's another name for that. It's a logical fallacy called ad hominem, you know, but vul- vulvarism makes it into a a academic discipline. Uh, and I, I've been actually toying with the idea of what I mentioned to you before, mutually assured vulvarism. Like I, I see some flaws when wiser heads are trying to engage at the head level with people who are just flinging around these personal attacks, you know, who are practicing vulvarism. And then someone says, "Oh well, you know, actually, uh. Uh, This uh, would undermine your own foundation and there's no limiting principle. And I go, you know, there may be a place for that. Maybe that person is better than I am. But sometimes I kind of want to just shoot back. I kind of want to maybe follow the proverb that says, do not answer a a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. And the folly is Bolivarism. And so I think maybe the only fitting response to that person is, well, you're just trying to get power too. You're only saying that because you are a professor at a leftist university or something like that. Like, you're only saying that because so, so, so. Is that uh, the only way uh, to, you know, not to practice vengeance, but just maybe kind of a just war principle of like, well, if that person shot the doomsday weapon, then I maybe need to use my own doomsday weapon that I would never, ever use unless someone shot first. I'm not sure. I'm still trying to work that out. But uh, maybe a better strategy is to just stand back and go, okay, we're dealing with imagination issues here. We're dealing with people who think that they're all about ideas, but they're actually just out of control with their imagination and failing to use the imagination according to the givers' standards for use of imagination. Which, as you mentioned earlier, Zach, ought to be to empathize with people. But sometimes the the people who talk most about empathy are not applying that across the board uh, because I think it's wrong to say that, well, there's no limiting principle for breaking down uh, the Christian ideas. I think actually there is a limiting principle and the limiting principle is imagination and emotion. If the person feels good about an idea, such as deconstruction itself, then it's above criticism. You don't deconstruct the deconstruction and you don't deconstruct uh, Jesus and the fact that he cared for poor people or the fact that Jesus wants you to have a nation or anything like that. Like that's above criticism because I feel good about that. And no one ever ruined my life over those ideas.
1: Right. But those are arbitrary. Yes. Well, those are not are. limits by design. like, you know, if, if you follow this tool honestly of deconstruction, it really doesn't end. It only ends when you decide it should end, and and that was that
0: was the point about it. Yeah. yeah. So the phrase needs to be there are no rational limits, like not by the laws right, of worldview right. analysis and logic and textbooks and words and things. You know, there's no left brain limits. Uh, there are right brain limits, uh, to use the colloquial sure. example, and that limit is one's imagination, and that's where we go in a moment here to chapter three. Is that if we're going to talk about imagination, then what do we need in order to get better imaginations we need well first to understand that god gives us these gifts and he decides how we ought to use them but we also need god's gifts of human creativity leading right back to stories fiction fictional conflicts that we can play out ideas and we can try to empathize with villains and heroes and we'll get to that in just a moment with chapter three So that leads perfectly to our second sponsor for this episode. If we need fiction to help us understand how and why Christians fight and how we can fight for peace amongst ourselves as believers in Christ, then we need great Christian-made books. And in the Lorehaven Guild, our second sponsor, we host monthly book quests through the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond that we can find. Right now, we're about halfway through our current book quest for a book by Lonnie Forbes, uh, the late author of The Seventh Son. This is a fantastical world inspired by Mesoamerican history and legends. There's a lot of conflict in this world, Uh, people fighting with each other who have been shaped by traditions, both real and made up by men. She follows a a prince who's trying to seek a bride from among six princesses, all of whom have various elemental powers. And then we also get involved with some pantheon, some mysticism, uh, some skullduggery in the palace and a lot of uh, latent philosophical discussions about law versus grace. This is a great book. It does call for some content cautions, so it's a good one to read along uh, with mature Christians. That's what we're hoping to do in the Lorehaven Guild, which is a Discord server. Uh, you can join exclusively by joining Lorehaven. Uh, just go to lorehaven.com and subscribe to the site. We will then email you the welcome message along with your super secret access code to join the Lorehaven Guild on Discord lorehaven.com slash subscribe and join the lorehaven guild we will announce our next book quest for april just within the next week or so, so zach going now to chapter three of this discussion uh, this is where things get a little bit happier and more based on fiction instead of just nonfiction. i think chapter three is called to debate people and their backstories we need fiction not nonfiction. so in order to train our imaginations better we need to understand that the Illusion that we're fighting about ideas needs correcting. We need to be more aware of ourselves and our own motives and why we feel so passionately, so overheatedly about these issues sometimes, and why we are so tempted to go after the person to launch those ad hominem identity attacks and make the debate about ideas more about our own backstories. Maybe somebody broke into our ranch or something. And so everything now is about uh, walls and security, better ranch security, or or maybe someone put up a wall and kept us out. And so we feel that any of those discussions about security really ought to be about allowing more people to do things like our own stories feed into this. And I think then we need to just admit that to say, okay, I'm way too tempted. Like, and I'm speaking for myself here. Like when I get into some of these discussions, like I'm way too tempted I had to see these through the lens of my own experience. But the story isn't about me and my experience. It is about Christ, the hero. It is about me as his character, following his rules in the redemption of the gospel. And I think especially, and I've mentioned this before, that when Christians debate politics, let's just talk about politics in particular, not personalities or in platform necessarily, just public policy. That's the meaning of how most people use the word. I've argued that Christians have basically thrown out a lot of their pop culture and not just Christian bookstores and adult coloring books and, you know, books about the little boy who goes to heaven. But I think we've thrown out of a lot of our pop culture and now it, all our new pop culture is just politics, politics, politics all the time. I think that this is suppressing the truth of our God-given imaginations. We think we're talking about issues. We're actually talking about imaginations and for folks with real church trauma, for example, or the, the tragic backstories in some way with a bad family or bad evangelical teaching, or just sincere questions about good evangelical teaching. I think we need fictional outlets to explore these, to reinforce in our hearts and our heads that we are creatures who are about stories. Stories are a way to play out these ideas in a secure environment and ask those questions and understand villains and understand flawed heroes before we go out and try to make these idea debates about our flawed heroes and villains in our own imagination. I think that folks without these kinds of stories or who are, who lack imagination, as you said, Zach, who will just go out and say, well, I can't imagine like, well, there's your problem. You need to imagine rather than just being drawn to the loudest explanation uh, yelled at by someone on social media. Well,
1: Stephen, uh, you know, to take a step back for a second, we're, we're talking about how can fiction help heal the divide, help us fight for peace, help us have better debates. And the interesting thing is, when uh, when I was doing prep for this episode, I just Googled, okay, what are the top books about conflict resolution? And it kind of naively, because every list I came across was nonfiction. It was all uh, the top ten strategies for you know workplace conflict or how to have uh, hope in your marriage or how to get along with your brother-in-law or whatever it was all very non-fiction how to kind of stuff and i even put like top novels or top fiction books <laughs> like everything i tried i kept coming up blank and then i started thinking well you know fiction is always about conflict right it's always about tension and so then i thought okay are there books where people worked out their tension or wor- worked out their conflict I guess there's some of those, but, but I think there's actually a better way to look at this, which is that fiction can be a shared landscape for people. It it can, for people that disagree in the real world about sometimes important things, a shared fandom can be a healthy thing to help bring people together. And, um, there's a quote from, this is kind of a longer quote and I'm setting up here. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called on science fiction about why he loves that genre. And, and he also goes into why people hate that genre. <laughs> and, you know, this is more common back in his time than it is now. Science fiction is a lot more mainstream now, but there's still a lot of people that would say today, well, what's the point of science fiction when I can get a how to book, you know, wh- why do my spouse and I need to read a novel and we can just read these, you know, top 10 steps to a healthier marriage, or why do I need to read a novel in my workplace when we can just, you know, go through one of these $5,000 seminars or, or whatever. So so Lewis addresses that, you know, which that instinct is still alive today. And he and he is addressing like, you know, wh- what is this uh kind of snobbery that people have towards fiction? He gives an answer in the form of a story and then he explains at the end. So here he goes. He says, quote, if we were all on board ship and there was trouble among the stewards, I can just conceive their chief spokesman looking with disfavor on anyone who stole away from the fierce debates in the saloon or pantry to take a breather on deck. For up there, he would taste the salt. He would see the vastness of the water. He would remember that the ship had a wither and a wince. He would remember things like fog, storms, and ice. What had seemed in the hot, lighted rooms down below to be merely the scene for a political crisis would appear once more as a tiny eggshell moving rapidly through an immense darkness over an element in which man cannot live it would not necessarily change his convictions about the rights and wrongs of the dispute down below, but it would probably show them in a new light. It could hardly fail to remind him that the stewards were taking for granted hopes more momentous than that of a rise in pay and the passengers forgetting dangers more serious than that of having to cook and serve their own meals. Stories of the sort I am describing are like that visit to the deck. They cool us, they are as refreshing as that passage in E.M. Forster where the man, looking at the monkeys, realizes that most of the inhabitants of India do not care how India is governed. <laughs> Hence the uneasiness which they arouse in those who, for whatever reason, wish to keep us wholly imprisoned in the immediate conflict. That, perhaps, is why people are so ready with the charge of escape. I never fully understood it till my friend Professor Tolkien asked me the very simple question, What class of men would you expect to be most preoccupied with and most hostile to the idea of escape? And gave the obvious answer jailers. The charge of fascism is, to be sure, mere mud flinging. Fascists as well as communists are jailers. Both would assure us that the proper study of prisoners is prison. But there is perhaps this truth behind it that those who brood much on the remote past or future or stare long at the night sky are less likely than others to be ardent or orthodox partisans.
0: There's there's your phrase from earlier, the orthodox partisans. Yep. So in a world of hot takes stories, help us cool off just by virtue of reminding us that there is more going on than the arguments in which we find ourselves. I, I love that reminder from Lewis. And obviously he seems to have put it into practice himself. And I, I feel that way myself. Like even before talking about stories that specifically address conflict, just the very idea of art and bigger picture stories helps me to cool off. Even when I'm going about my day and listening to podcasts that are all about the politics and the hot takes and you know, necessary conflicts and not always stuff that I agree with that I'm hearing. But sometimes I can feel myself getting overheated and I realize, okay, no. I need to put on a drama podcast like an Adventures in Odyssey episode. I'm going back through a bunch of those. And that is a cooling effect. And these are not, you know, sentimental, uh, you know, pacifistic stories. They're often stories with good guys and bad guys, but they're a story that is not just the hot conflict of the day. Or maybe I'm listening to music instead. Or or lately, I've been uh, binging on the Pilgrim's Progress uh, podcast that we're going to be talking about and like. That takes my imagination out of the moment and I would dare to say a little bit higher or at least further out. It is a proper escape from a conflict, maybe necessary conflicts going on, uh, but it helps me then to be better equipped to go back to that conflict, if I must, uh, with knowledge that the story is not about me. The story is not about how I see the world. The story is not about my tragic experience with the church or my conflict with other Christians or my disagreement with the people who have legitimately terrible ideas about politics and church governance and things. The story is about Jesus stories about his gifts. The story is about happiness forever, not the trauma of today.
1: I uh, have a soft spot in my heart for disaster movies, horror movies, war movies. I don't watch them all the time, but every now and then I want to see a story about something really terrible to remind myself that good will win. <laughs> you know that in the end Jesus comes back. In the end, God rules the world just like He rules in heaven. And and sometimes the things that plague us now, including actual plagues, I have to put those in perspective. There are much worse things that have happened around the world or in history. And yeah, there might be other worse things that are coming, but they can be overcome. I uh, watched a movie recently that. I'm not going to get into, but I, I found myself thinking, why am I watching this movie? This is a really scary and terrible movie. And I thought, well, because in two hours it'll be over and the bad guy will be defeated. Uh, and it's, it's like that um, Chesterton quote, like children need to read stories about dragons to know that dragons can be defeated. But there's another quality to all of this in that when we read stories or watch movies or engage in fiction, it it does sort of unplug us from those momentary fights uh, like you said it helps us cool off and it helps kind of put things in perspective and it it's so interesting how lewis though he he zeroed in on how the actual resistance to engaging in stories comes from jailers from people that want to trap us in these endless fruitless debates and fights Uh, because that's where they have power that they, they love keeping people in jail in these, you know, just endless squabbles. And I um, it's, it's people that, you know, take themselves way too seriously having stories as even, even if you just read it yourself, but particularly if you can share a fandom with other people, I think that that really helps us kind of both break out of the jail because I, I think sometimes people are not as far away as we think they are. I think that, um, social media does this weird thing where sometimes it makes people over familiar with each other, but other times it makes people, uh, overly distant from other people. There, there's a lot to be said for shared fandoms, but you know, uh, an example I'll give just to make it a little, really practical. I'm a big fan of the expanse, the books and the, the TV show. There's this one storyline where very unlikely allies or, or very unlikely people become allies. People that were enemies before team up to defeat a much greater enemy, a much more existential threat. And this, this actually happens multiple times in the story. It was portrayed really well in the final season of the TV show. I love like alien invasion, like independence day kind of movies. Cause that, that always happens, right? People kind of put aside their little petty squabbles and they're like, we need to defeat the mothership because it's going to end us all. Th- that's a really great power stories can have to say, look. Like Lewis points out, if I'm on the deck of a ship and I'm just come out of this argument about, you know, I want, you know, we need a pay raise or whatever. Hey, let's think about the fact that we're in the middle of the Arctic ocean. <laughs> and at any point, our ship could hit an iceberg and we could all die. And if that happens, we're going to need to depend on one another and really work together. And whatever side we come on in this wage dispute, that's one of Many problems, yes, but it's not perhaps the largest problem, and we're taking a lot for granted in the dangers that we face. And so, yes, this is a a great way that stories can help us all.
0: The stories help us to cool off by helping us see the bigger picture, drawing us further out so we can look back and see the larger narrative in which this this large battle that we were just in is actually more of a skirmish. From a distance, uh, from viewing in the scope of eternity, uh, it is a necessary skirmish, but it is a skirmish. I think the other advantage that stories have in helping us to discern Christians clashing in public and uh, help us fight for peace is it helps uh, good stories help us see people better. Uh, And I I look back uh, just my own story here and uh, I like stories that you mentioned, Zach, where, you know, two sets of enemies team up to fight the actual worst enemy. Like, I I love it when those happens. Like, there's even a moment at the end of the uh, the classic Disney movie, uh, The Rocketeer. Uh, where spoiler alert, yeah. you know, the, uh, the cops and the gangsters team up to fight the Nazis, you know, and like, okay, I'm on the side of the cops, not the side of the gangsters, but I like it when everybody just joins together and like, what do you know? You know, they're all, they're all patriots, you know, they, they don't want Hitler yeah. to win, you know, so at least that happens. And that even moments like that, I think can be a bit of a test for your heart. You know, do you get a thrill of glee when you see those moments happen in stories, you know, where you know, suddenly the villain uh, turns out he has a heart of gold and, you know, he decides that he wants to become a good guy. You know, some of my favorite anime has moments like this and I love those. And it provokes that longing, you know, for redemption that even the worst villains can become good guys. You know, obviously they have to repent and change and face their own consequences. But I like that because I want in some way to empathize with the villains whether or not they change, you know, I, I don't want a world of easy cartoon villains that I can then project the, uh, my own villains from my past on top of their faces and say, Yeah, hero, go get him. Right. You know, this story isn't about that villain and that hero. It's about me. And y'all are just avatars, you know, little game pieces on my board. And I'm the game master now. And I want the villains to go down and go down hard and suffer forever. And then, oh, what? What have I just become? I have become. A god in my own imagination, you know, because the story is about me. That's idolatry. Then uh, I want people to suffer. I want my enemies to suffer. I want people who look like my enemies to suffer. My imagination then is out of control unless I take it back to stories that remind me of this bigger picture and the fact that even in good fiction, heroes and villains are more complicated than these simplistic notions that I get uh, when I'm going out on a social media to yell at that Christian leader. Or that Christian civilian,
1: you know, there is a place sometimes to to pause um, hostilities and and not necessarily to end them. That there are some things that do need to get worked out, and so sometimes you know we cool off and we take a breather and we you know we have a um, a ceasefire, but maybe not an armistice or maybe not a end to the war, and that's okay too. I but I think it can help us sort of humanize one another let me give you a story to illustrate this uh, because of course we have to use stories, but this is actually a true story. I had a professor in college that he grew up on Normandy beach during world war II. (laughs) So his, uh, his parents saw the uh, you know, the war really heating up and they thought America is going to invade France to go after Germany. And uh, the, the beach should be the safest place to go because the Germans had really fortified the beach and, course he guessed wrong that's exactly where the war came but uh so they had to flee there they they moved further inland to this other village and while they were there a german train got stuck in uh as it was passing through that village and the uh the villagers were really freaked out about this because they knew at any moment the americans could bomb that german train because it was carrying weapons and supplies and whatnot and of course the germans on that train were very worried because. They're about to get bombed by the American planes. And so out of nowhere, these French resistance fighters come into town. The, the villagers come to the train and the Germans get out of the train. They all work together to make this train move. And that's kind of funny when you think about it, because that really doesn't serve the interests of the French resistance to have this train survive. But they made this decision in the moment that more important then us getting rid of the German army is this village not getting destroyed, which would surely happen if the train is right here in the middle of this village and it gets bombed. And so there was this brief ceasefire and then they all got the train working and then it, it went on and pretty soon after it left the village, it did get bombed. And then pretty soon the, uh, the French resistance and the, uh, the Germans were at war again uh, my professor said, you know, they all just kind of backed away slowly, <laughs> kind of watching each other the whole way. Uh, and they, you know, they end up fighting again, of course, because the war was still going. But that brief ceasefire really did show that there was a higher value in that moment of just winning this war, which was sparing all these innocent people that were just stuck in the middle of the conflict. And I think. You know, it's moments like those that we can see, hey, sometimes there is something more important in the battle. Not that the battle has to end immediately, but sometimes you have to watch out for other people that are getting, you know, that might be
0: collateral damage. Amen. We, we've seen the stories about mercenaries or warriors, you know, who never could leave the battle behind. You know, they had seen too much in their struggles. And now that the peace has come, they don't know what to do with themselves. I think that those are some of the most tragic stories I've ever heard of, uh, that someone could get so wrapped up in uh, fighting, maybe even in a good war, uh, maybe even for the good guys, uh, but then just cannot find healing. And uh, to route the discussion back to the whole issue of Christians clashing over deconstruction or any of those political debates, I think people cannot quit the battle. I think there's lots of people who are just too invested, either emotionally or, or sometimes financially. You know, I, I used the example earlier of people who weaponized their trauma, but at the risk of mixing metaphors, people will also exchange their trauma for valuable currency. And that currency then gains in value when they're trading with other people, swapping uh, trauma stories that now they're too invested in this alternative uh, emotional cryptocurrency, and they cannot stop. (laughs) It's too profitable for them. Maybe they would like to stop, but they can't. Uh, And maybe in another dimension somewhere, you know, I got into this, you know, not because I have some traumatic background, uh, but because I also enjoy uh, writing, uh, you know, apologetics materials, you know, at the very popular level you know i don't read big textbooks about it or get too much into the philosophies and all of that just for the limitations of time if nothing else but i could have done that but maybe i just subconsciously detected you know like if you get too much into that then i have seen even among the good biblical apologists i have seen what that can do to your soul You are so shell-shocked all the time with all of these debates and battles and especially people coming after you on social media because you weren't exactly clear on this theological definition. (laughs) Uh, You know, you, you get gadflies and hangers on and other mercenaries who want to do what you do. And then I've seen people just start to fire indiscriminately. And I actually used a phrase the other day when I saw an example of this is like, hold your fire, hold your fire. That's one of our own men. And I, I understand the confusion and the fog of battle, but if you're always in the battle, then some of that is on you. You know, the these clashes that Christians have in public, it's not the same as a theater of war. Uh, and even a theater of war may have particular lines or, you know, you wave a white flag and then you can come out and talk terms of negotiation. Like There's some standards of war that we ought to be using in our Christian conflicts that people are just not using. And I, I think the purpose needs to be not getting stuck in the war, not being a warmonger, you know, who is financially invested in people shooting at each other because you're the one handing out the weapons to one side or the other or both. The purpose ought to be the peace. The purpose ought to be the happiness that Christ has secured in our future, even if not our present. And for our emotional conflicts, the trauma that we have from church trouble or, or family abuse or any of that, like our purpose ought not to be trading in the currency of our trauma the purpose ought to be finding healing and i I risk using the word here therapy because we bring in some secular expectations for you know healing because you're sitting on a couch talking to your therapist or something i think the healing primarily comes from christ Uh, the prophet said that by his wounds we are healed not by our battles not by our self exaltation as saviors we're not going to find healing that way And I think that stories, by virtue of giving us the bigger picture and a more complex portrayal, the good stories anyway, of the heroes and villains and the conflicts and the perspective of the conflicts, I think these stories can help us find healing. And I think I can say that from experience that I mentioned earlier, that I feel like to some extent I've been through some deconstructed uh, deconstruction. Not because I deconstructed in real life, but because I worked out, at least so far, I feel like I've pre-deconstructed in a secure environment formed by fiction. Uh, Just recently, I I went through the Adventures in Odyssey story arc that Phil Lawler was talking about a few episodes ago, uh, where a, a child, you know, and at the level of a child and, you know, age appropriate for the audience, the primary audience for Odyssey, you know, she starts having doubts and she's literally reading The words of this atheist philosopher who's calling into question the goodness of God or whether God truly exists. Like, it's kind of funny because she makes him into this imaginary friend, you know, who's kind of like a a shoulder atheist, you know, who's kind of tempting her uh, and then actually takes on more sinister tone later. Like it was age appropriate and pretty simple, but I appreciated that just a few weeks ago. But earlier in my life, there were similar Odyssey episodes that kind of worked through some of those feelings, even if not specific doubts about Christianity or fights between Christians. But then there was uh, one of my favorite Christian main novels, Frank Peretti's The Visitation, that literally focused on a pastor, a Pentecostal pastor. He would name denominations Peretti would. Uh, He went into the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals and then the weird sex cult down the road, you know, and he had them all in this ministerial association meeting fighting. And then all along, uh, the central character, Travis Jordan, washed up pastor, is trying to determine like, well, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in a Jesus who would let me have uh, an only mildly successful ministry? You know, and now I'm basically retired from this little church that's falling for the cult leader that's in town. Do I believe in a Jesus who would allow my wife to die of cancer or who would allow the member of my church to have his wife killed in a freak highway accident? And all of that, including the church trauma, by the way, and the, uh, the, the abusive scenarios and the legalists on the, on the board of deacons and all of that, like that's all there. So I kind of knew, thanks to the visitation, to expect that. I think a lot of people maybe new Christians or people from traumatic backgrounds go into these debates and they expect something different. Uh, I, I kind of expect to face these kinds of conflicts. Th- thanks to the fiction that I've read. And right now I must say though, I mean, Paredes the visitation is about 20 years old. I'm not seeing a lot of Christian made stories specifically about these themes, the battles that Christians get into or, or a fantasy world equivalent of these battles. You know, that's more uh, a more timeless take on these issues. Like I don't want issue driven fiction, but I wouldn't mind more fiction that dealt with these issues openly, you know, maybe even mention the term deconstruction. But for many readers, I think even the simpler stories that we do find can help stories about simple themes, like an individual's loneliness or anger, or struggling for identity in Christ after growing up, you know, the abused uh, orphan, you know, she discovers she's actually the lost princess. Like even some of the tropey stories can help with this. But I think we can't get to those stories and respect them, even the simple ones, if we have not confessed our sin of evading the pain or our anger our sinful response to this pain by turning it into the currency of conflict or trying to make ourselves into big heroes who can save other victims on social media Uh, because we can't save ourselves. Like I I think the great fantasy can remind us that this can happen. Uh, The fantasy can remind us that fighting isn't always bad, but our sinful response to the battle, our refusal to fight for the peace, that is sinful. And Zach, you mentioned earlier, great science fiction. I think if we want to test ideas about human philosophy and uh, just war versus unjust war, like I think great science fiction as well as fantasy can help us test those ideas in the simulacrum of imagination. And you also mentioned horror stories, Zach. Great horror stories can remind us that sin and abuse, the worst excesses of corruption that people have, those kinds of stories can remind us that those things are truly dark. Again, to risk uh, uh, using a psychological term, they can give us some cathartic release but it's not just entertainment. Uh, The story does have value and it can remind us that sin is evil. It will be punished. And I think that can help us find that healing that we can play it out in our imaginations. And then if we do go back to these debates with other Christians privately or in public, we can see that person as more of a person. Maybe we need to fight with that person over ideas. And maybe that person is truly abusive, but we're not going to recognize and discern the abusers from this, the people who happen to look like the abusers unless we train our imaginations to work according to god's rules rather than our own unrestrained emphasis on emotion wow we could really keep going with that one but i think we will end that discussion there if you have any beef with us uh, for how we covered that Uh, do email us podcast at lorehaven.com pick a fight with the ideas not the persons you know you don't want to hear us tell you that you need to go read some uh, books instead of uh, picking on us as people podcast at lorehaven.com or you can find us on social media just search for lorehaven on facebook instagram or twitter or of course in the uh, show notes for this episode 103 you can find the comment box at the end or you can send us a message that way Meanwhile, looks like our com station is lit up with a, a few messages and not just about our recent episodes of the podcast, but also some of the great articles we've been hosting at lorehaven.com. We don't have time to get to every comment in this episode. I will note, though, we had some great comments on background about episode 101, uh, the one with uh, Megan Basham, no stranger to conflicts on the social media herself. <laughs> in fact, some of the discussion that she uh, has been involved in has inspired uh, the background of this episode. One of those articles that brought some great discussion was Josiah DeGraff's article about uh, The Seventh Son. Uh, That's the book we are reading as our current book quest in the Lorehaven Guild, uh, the one by the uh, late Lonnie Forbes. By the way, as an aside, uh, it turns out that Lonnie's husband mentioned uh, that before her death uh, last month in February 2022, she did write one more novel, a standalone. And I understand that that will be published at some point. So not in the uh, Seventh Son universe, it would seem. Uh, it is a standalone book that she literally managed to write uh, in between and on the way to cancer treatment. So look forward to hearing more about that. Meanwhile, we are exploring the Seventh Sun, and we will link to Josiah's article in the show notes. Uh, he really focused on how the novel helps us explore uh, relatable non-Christian characters. So it really fits with our discussion here in engaging with a story world that's Full of conflict and human sacrifice, and all of that, stories help us empathize with a culture very unlike our own. Like, nobody here is a Christian, uh, and everybody here has some mixed motives and are bound up in uh, ritualistic tradition and even uh, uh, paganism going on. So, being able to empathize with those types of characters can help us uh, relate even to the people that maybe we gotta fight when we're fighting on the field of ideas as Christians. A reader named Tim replied to Josiah's article, and he said, in part, quote, I'd be curious as to how this conversation intersects with the cultural appropriation debate. Many of the Goodreads reviews for The Seventh Son are very negative regarding Forbes' handling of Mesoamerican culture and characters, in great part because she's a white author and her own culture beliefs are evident in the story, which many argue disrespects the culture that inspired her work. Yet at the same time, as your article just mentioned, Forbes may make some Christians uncomfortable, in a good way, causing them to relate to and sympathize with people who believe something that is clearly false and destructive, which is a much stronger foundation for evangelism than mockery of cartoonish unbelievers. End quote. I haven't seen those criticisms of Lonnie Forbes' story world uh, personally, although I know that they're out there. And I think some of them may just be uncomfortable with people exploring a world that they don't come from. Like they're not 100% ancient Aztec or Incan. So how could they possibly write about uh, these pagan gods and adapt them into a completely fantasy setting where there's elemental magic and all of this? Like uh, I'll I'll dodge that issue for now. I do appreciate the way that Tim praised Josiah's article uh, for Lonnie Forbes' world helping to do what I think Good Christian debaters, people who debate ideas, need to do, and that is steel man the other guy. Uh, in these discussions, people will often say, well, that's a straw man. And the opposite of a straw man is a steel man. And if you are turning your opponent into a cartoon character, that's a straw man. It's a flat representation. It doesn't actually uh, represent who that person is, their complexities, uh, any of the strong points of their worldview. You steel man the person then you're not only respecting them as God's image bearer and as a worthy opponent, you're behaving with honor and you actually have the chance to make a superior argument uh, against that person's view. Again, keeping it hopefully about the ideas and not just the person. The steel man is the best possible version of that person. And I think even if you're going to be the debating sort uh, who goes out and debates other Christians or non-Christians stories, help you do that by helping you train to recognize that the other person is a person not just a brain in a tank or a collection of the stupidest versions of that person's ideas. Next on Fantastical Truth, what if you were a pending Christian named Christian living in a city doomed for destruction called the City of Destruction, and you found a scroll that told you about your burden of sin so that you grew a literal burden of sin, then you set out on a quest for Christ's redemption and to fight hypocrites, legalists, atheists, giants, and monsters, and the most famous allegory-laden land in all Christian fantastical literature. Yes, Pilgrim's Progress counts as fantasy, inheriting a long and glorious tradition of Christians making up fantastic allegories for spiritual reality. Now-author Zachary Bartles has adapted John Bunyan's tale for dramatic podcast format, and he will pass through the Wicket Gate to join us for exploring some Bunyan puritanical symbolism and how we can reappreciate allegory as Christians. Meanwhile, if you're in the battle, if you're feeling a little shell-shocked, or if you're feeling a little traumatized from previous battles, make sure you look for the peace. Make sure you understand that the battles here on this world are temporary. We do not live for these battles. We are living for the happiness that Christ has secured. And in fact, Christ has already defeated our ultimate foe, the enemy of sin, And will bring us into a world beyond all the battles where every sword is beaten into a plowshare. We can look forward to that eternal age as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.